morning again, church. Grateful that you are here. Hope you've been encouraged in our time to, in worship together this morning. It's been a great day of worship already. It's a beautiful day outside. We have much to be thankful for. I want to just uh, thank Joe and, and the worship team and all the, those who help us lead worship every, every week uh, and prepare our hearts and minds to study God's Word together. appreciate James uh, so much and leading our thoughts uh, in, around communion today. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to encourage you to find a Bible and look there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 so we can read that together and I know you could listen to it, but I just believe there is something else that happens when we see those words and we read them together. And so I encourage you to find a Bible there in front of you or on your phone, however you access your Bible. Uh, and we're in a series right now that we're calling, uh, we've been calling Becoming Church. And this, in this series, we've been talking about uh, becoming the church that God imagines. And to help us think about becoming this kind of church, we, we've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. Several weeks ago, we started all the way back in chapter 1, and we just have a couple of weeks left in this series. And studying the book like 1 Corinthians, you know, is a little bit like reading somebody's mail without their permission, right? Like listening into a conversation that you weren't originally a part of, because it was a letter that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth in the first century. And so over the last couple of months, we've been listening to one side of this conversation, to Paul's side of the conversation, and and asking what is it that we can learn from them, uh, from this church, and what's going on there that can apply in our context still today as we are trying to become the church that God imagines for us to be. And so 1 Corinthians, I really believe, is, is the, you know, part of, a big part of what Paul says here is what he's been building to the last several chapters, in chapters 12 and 11, 10 and 9, even to, to some extent, and so if, you, if you're kind of jumping in here and you've missed some of these sermons, you can find the previous week's sermons on our website or the podcast that we uh, put up every week. And so I would encourage you to go and, and maybe kind of hear some other you know, context about what we're talking about today. Uh, but even if you've not been, or been here for several weeks, there's a good chance that you may have some familiarity with 1 Corinthians 13 because it is probably the most well-known words of the entire letter. Of all the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, these words might be the most commonly known uh, by people. Certainly, uh, people know them, maybe if, if they attend weddings, often these words are used in weddings, in various settings where relationships are talked about and love is discussed. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is known kind of as the love chapter, and rightly so, because these words may be some of the greatest words ever written about the topic of love, the subject of love. Really, I, I think what Paul wrote is kind of the, the pinnacle of love of writings on the subject of love that have ever existed. They're, they're poetic, and yet they are incredibly practical. Uh, they, they put a feeling of love that, that we, we know, the feeling of love, but they put that feeling into action, and they help us see what a life of love really looks like. And so before we read, I want to ask if you would just to bow with me together and let's pray for God's blessing upon our time in his word this morning. Father, we thank you again for just the privilege of gathering with uh, other saints and being reminded of the beauty of Christ as we've looked upon his face and we've been reminded of, of the great privilege that it is to simply know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
There is no greater thing to us this morning as we gather and as we think about Jesus. And I pray this morning that the love that Christ has for us will be made known to us as we read these words that Paul wrote to this church a long time ago. And that we'll see the ways that these words connect to our own lives as we try to become and be the church that you imagined for us to be for one another and also that you imagined for us to be for the sake of the world. This morning, God, I pray that you'll give us ears to hear and you'll give us eyes to see all that you want us to hear and see so that we may live into your will as you would have us do. We pray through the all-powerful name of Jesus Christ and the church said, Amen. So 1 Corinthians uh, 13, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read all 13 verses together, so uh, let's do that now. Paul says, And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul's first phrase Interesting, he's, as he's interested in showing us the most excellent way, actually points backwards to what he's just said in chapter 12. And last week we looked at chapter 12. In the last part of chapter 12, he finished by saying, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. In chapter 12, those gifts were, he was talking about spiritual gifts. And we talked about all of the different spiritual gifts that he mentions there and others that he doesn't mention last week. And in the case of Corinth, some of the people in the church there in Corinth were really interested in the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues and prophesying, but they weren't expressing those gifts in love to the other members of the body there. And for us, spiritual gifts are an incredibly important part of of being a Christian. They're the way that God helps the church flourish. But the gifts that you've been given by the Holy Spirit are not the point, is what Paul says. Love 
is the point, which is why he begins chapter 13 with, and now I will show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way is love. Love is the most important gift. Love is the, is the thing that, that keeps the engine moving, right? Without love, all the other gifts are worthless. And I just want to walk through what he says here in the first part of this chapter and look at these examples. He says, a person might speak in tongues, even the glorious tongues of angels. But if their speaking isn't motivated by love, it's just religious noise. A person may have the gift of prophecy and may be able to proclaim the word of God in ways that dazzle audiences near and far. But if the use of these gifts isn't motivated by love, they are, from a kingdom perspective, completely and utterly worthless. A person may have amazing insight into all the mysteries and all the questions that you and I have about Scripture and about the world and about God and may may possess all kinds of knowledge. And and this would undoubtedly impress crowds, maybe, maybe even get them some sort of public recognition. But if they aren't motivated by a desire to ascribe unsurpassable worth to all people at all times, then their gifts are meaningless. It also does not matter that a person has faith that can command mountains to be relocated and they actually relocate themselves. According to Paul, it has no value if that kind of faith exists in a person's life unless it is fueled by an agreement with God that every person alive is worth God himself dying for. And finally, and perhaps maybe the most surprising... Even if a person gives every single thing that they own to the poor, and even if they endure great hardships, if their actions in their doing those things are not motivated by a love that looks like Jesus dying on the cross, the giving of their money actually accomplishes absolutely nothing. The essence Paul says, of of true spirituality, whether someone is living a life in the Spirit of God is self-sacrificial love, not gifts, not knowledge, not even the ability to do miracles, he says. And love is the more excellent way than the other gifts because without love, you can use all of those gifts, but you would not be using them in a Holy Spirit way. You can give money away to the poor, speak in tongues, and have a deep faith. But if you're rude and self-seeking and arrogant about it, then all of those actions are worthless. Love starts as an idea. But it, doesn't, it always has to turn into action. That's, that's part of what he's saying. It always can't stop at an idea. It has to turn into an action. So don't say that you love me. Show that you love me. Don't say that you love your brother or sister. Show that you love your brother or sister. Don't say that you love the church or love the world as God loves them. Show that love. This is what Paul is after. And these verses, I believe, show us what love looks like when it puts flesh and bones on it and walks out into the world. The kind of love Paul is talking about here is a word that maybe many of you have heard before, is is agape love. 
This is the term that is used throughout this entire chapter. Agape means esteem, to hold in high esteem, to show deep affection for someone. And interestingly, agape, the, the kind of love that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, uh, is actually used in other places in the New Testament. And in one of those places, it's used in 1 John chapter 4 to define God and describe God. When John says, whoever does not love Agape does not know God because God is agape. Agape love is vastly different from all the other loves that the Corinthians would have known about. This, this is a love that's complete. It communicates oneness. It, complete, it communicates wholeness. Agape love connects us because when you love someone with agape love, you have the highest level of interest in their well-being, in their life. It's most clearly seen in God's love for us. So this is what I think John means. He says, when you think of God, you're thinking of agape love. And and I've heard some people suggest, thinking back to 1 Corinthians, that we, we, as we read 1 Corinthians, that we, you know, this particularly this part where he says love is patient and love is kind. Maybe you've heard the suggestion before, like I have, that, that we should replace the word love with our name. And we should read the passage like that, like Doug is patient, Doug is kind, Doug is, does not envy, he does not boast. But as I've considered that idea some more, it seems like that this is a bad idea. It seems like that when you do this, all that you actually do is create a mountain that is too difficult for you or I to climb. Because we're striving to live into this agape love, but we understand how to do it only because we've seen how Jesus does it first. It works with only one name in the place of the word love, and that is God's name. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy or boast. It is not proud. God does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered and keeps no record of wrongs. Amen. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. We love one another. We love our neighbors. We love our enemies because God has loved us first. Another place in 1 John chapter 4, a little later, John says, We love because He first loved us. Love is what Jesus has shown and what Jesus has done for others in a situation like us. So here's the thing. This is what's, I think, beautiful about this, the way we read and understand 1 Corinthians 13. When we love... What we're actually doing is behaving like God. We share God's outlook toward people when we live into these words, even if we do them imperfectly. Treating neighbors and enemies alike in the way that God has treated us. Paul wants us to see that the way that the church becomes the church that God imagined is to embody this love that he's talking about. And he's been building up to this point for the last several chapters as he's talked about all the things he's talked about with this church and with us. Paul uses this word on purpose because it, it, compu- it communicates an important difference. Other words for love that maybe you've heard before that are used in the New Testament, phileo love, a natural human affection, what people refer to as brotherly love, where the city of Philadelphia kind of gets the name the city of brotherly love. 
and eros, usually, usually related and connected to physical attraction. Uh, but th- that doesn't always have an others-focused motive, right? Our problem with the word love and the way we understand the English word love is that we can love chocolate and steak and our last vacation, and we use the same word when we're expressing love for those things as we're expressing for a brother or sister in Christ, or as we're expressing for God. And we understand that they're not the same, and yet they're the same word. And so what do we, how do we say it? How do we talk about it? How do we think about it? I think it's important to know and understand the kind of love that he's talking about here. And one thing to know about this love, another way to think about and define this agape love is that agape love is, is always others-directed. So one of the ways you know that agape love is happening is if it's other-directed at other people instead of self-directed love. I'd, I love certain things. That's not agape love because it's not others-directed. It's about me and what I like and what I love. Agape love moves people to sharing of themselves in a way that unity is created. And this is what Paul is encouraging us with as the body of Christ here. And he's what it's what he's encouraging this church in Corinth about as well, to, to allow this love that God has for us to move us in such a way that it creates unity among the body. This is why I believe he writes verses 4 through 7. All of these ideas about what love is in verses 4 through 7. He's describing the way that love gets lived out in the church. Right? A lot of times we think about these words, as I said earlier, and, and they're kind of connected to a wedding ceremony. And that, that's great. That's fine. They're, we use the, Lana and I use these words in our wedding ceremony. Lots and lots of people do. Right? But they weren't written by Paul you know, for the 21st century wedding in mind. He didn't have that wedding in mind. Right? He had the church in mind when he wrote this. He had brothers and sisters in Christ getting along and living in community together in mind when he wrote these words. He's describing the way that this love gets lived out in the church and in the world. And it's so practical. And yet it is so hard at the same time. Patience and kindness. Not envying or boasting or being proud, not dishonoring others, not delighting in evil, not keeping a record of wrongs, always trusting each other, hope, being hopeful together, persevering together, right? Which it's practical in the sense that we understand it, and it's hard in the sense that we have to live it out. But the thing again is that the, the beautiful thing about it is that when we do it, we are behaving like God has behaved toward us, church. That God has been kind to you and me. God has been patient with us. God has not kept a record of all of our wrongs. And that there is a a work that is happening through the love that is displayed on the cross that we get to see and experience and know that now we get to live out in our lives. So that when you practice patience as you're behaving like God, this is what you're actually doing. You're practicing patience, but what you're actually doing is loving someone. When you practice kindness, you're actually being kind, but you're also loving someone. When you avoid envy and boasting and pride, like you're, you're all, you're, you are avoiding those things, and yet you are also sharing love instead 
of those things. When you choose to honor someone instead of dishonoring them, that's agape love. When you seek the other person's interests above your own, you're loving other people well. Agape love doesn't easily anger. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Agape love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. And any time that any of those actions are happening, you are extending love to the people in your life. And any time that protection or trust or hope or perseverance get lived out, agape love is what's happening right before your very eyes. It couldn't be more practical and it couldn't be more difficult at the same time. And yet here's the best news, I think, about this word from Paul. Is that when we choose this path, Paul says, it will never, ever fail. Amen? It will never fail. You may not see the result from you extending kindness that gets transformed by the Spirit of God into an act of love. You may not see the patience that you're trying to extend, the the keeping no record of wrongs that you're trying to to offer to someone that you're in a relationship with. You may not see the result of that as the Holy Spirit transforms the action into an act of love, but it is happening It doesn't mean that it's failing because you don't see it. It just means that you don't see it. Something is happening, Paul says, which leads us to the last point that I want to talk about this morning in the last verse. Another reason that love is the greatest, is the most excellent way, is that love is permanent. He says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Agape love is permanence. The the reason that it's permanent is that the faith that you and I have in Jesus Christ, the faith that we have that Jesus is alive, that He was risen from the dead, that He's seated at the right hand of the Father right this very moment, the faith that we hold on to that that leads us to believe that those are realities that actually happened and that exist, that faith though you've never seen Jesus with your physical eyes, will become sight one day. So it's not going to remain. You're not going to have to have faith when you're standing there looking at Jesus in the face. Your hope, the hope that I have and that you have that Jesus is alive, that the resurrection is real, that the tomb is still empty, will be fulfilled one day when we meet Jesus face to face. But love will carry on into the next life. And I I imagine that it will be amplified and that it will be purified in a way that we have never actually known as we stand in the presence of God for all time. Love does not go away, Paul says. Not only does it change the way we do everything, on this side of death, it lasts into eternity. Praise God. And the beautiful thing is that while these words are sure, great for weddings, Paul imagined them again for a group of people who would put them into practice, right? They would would live these words out. They were words that were imagined for a church. I mean, Paul just talked about in the last couple of chapters about being a body, and he's going to have some more to say about that in chapter 14 as it relates to worship. 
He's just talked about being the body and acknowledged that we have different gifts. All of us are different from one another. And, and often when people are different from one another, what that tends to do is kind of create division and create walls. And, well, we don't agree on that thing or we're not alike in that way or our personalities are really different in this way. And so what he's asking now is all of those things are not going to go away. Our differences with one another are never going to go away. No matter how hard we try, they will never go away. And, and Jesus doesn't want them to. Jesus actually believes that the way that we communicate to the world that God is at work among us is that we are all so different from one another and we, we believe in, you know, we, we live out our faith in various ways, right? We may read scripture in different ways. We may have different thoughts about different ideas and, and that we believe things and that the blood of Christ is what brings us together and that we're a body, right? So he's actually asking, what does it look like for the body to be one flesh? For the church to be one flesh. We use that language when we talk about marriages and weddings. A husband and wife coming together to be one. But what does it look like for a church to be one? It looks like this radical love that God has shown us through Christ. And God's desire for the church is that we love each other so intimately and so deeply that love becomes the glue that holds things together when they are difficult. When things are hard. When we discover that we're different that we have differences of opinion. Maybe we read Scripture in different ways, that Paul says love is bigger than all of that, that we exercise our gifts in different ways. Love is bigger than all of that, that we have different ways of expressing our hearts in worship. Love is bigger than all of that, which means that we don't, we're not, we don't get let off the hook, right? We don't, our circumstances don't determine whether or not we actually extend love to one another. Because that's typically the way that human beings think about love. If, you know, I'll extend love if kind of the terms are terms that I agree with. And Paul says, whether we extend it to one another or not isn't generated by our circumstances. Or whether we like something or not. Or whether we dislike something or not. We extend it to one another no matter the circumstances because that's what God imagined for us to do and that's what paul is saying to this church to our church we are one body with one heart that pumps the same blood the blood of jesus christ through us christ is the head and because jesus is the head of the church all things are possible for us who believe and now he says we understand this in part and we live it out as much as we are able to live it out by the grace of god and while we do that, we long for the day that we will be, it will be fully realized, the day when we will see Jesus face to face. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for this beautiful description of love in your word. And the way that we think about it this morning, God, I pray that you'll, you'll give us a picture of, of you and the ways that you have been patient and kind to us. That you've given of yourself, your only son, for our sakes. The most selfless act that's ever been done. That you don't delight in evil. You don't keep a record of wrongs. You are patient and do not get easily angered with us. God, may we see this picture of you as we look at Jesus Christ on the cross. And may we live it out in our lives in the coming weeks. May we also extend this kind of love to one another and to those around us. 
And we know, God, that we can't do this without your help, without your grace and your mercy, and without your Holy Spirit working in us to equip us to live in a way that you imagine. And so I pray, God, for our church, for this community of faith this morning, for Christians in this city and around this world, that we will all together live into this picture of what you imagine for us. Forgive us, God, when we withhold love based upon our circumstances. Help us, convict us of ways that we can, can mature beyond that behavior. And I pray, God, that you'll continue to work as you help us become the church that you imagine for us to be. We're thankful for the ways that we see your Spirit working among us, and we pray uh, in increasing ways that you'll do your work here. We thank you for Christ. We pray in his name. And the church said this morning together, amen. If you would stand with me this morning. We want to provide.